Hello, and welcome to a special Dream Lab series of the Price Lab podcast. Matt Lincoln is a research software engineer and digital humanities developer at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. His class, Tidy Data, focuses on teaching humanists how to handle complex relationships and uncertainty in data. We're all familiar with tidying up our living spaces, but how can data be tidied up? The idea of tidy data draws on two different sorts of sources. One is a set of data structures and design principles for making data manipulation, even of complex data, making it as painless as possible. But this also comes from the sort of topical for those of us in the US who were watching Netflix last year, Marie Kondo's tidying up. They have so much stuff. It's a never-ending battle to fight the clutter. Hello, I'm Maria Kondo. <laughs> the goal of doing that work was not to completely sterilize and empty your entire house, but instead to order your house according to the things that were most important, and that your definition of order and tidiness was probably going to be different from someone else's definition. We have too much stuff. So the course was really centered on both the practicalities of how we do this, but then on the philosophical ideas of what are principles that help me decide what is tidy data in my context, or what is tidy data for the audience that I'm trying to work with. Like many different fields, I think the humanities suffers from a kind of what I like to call data anxiety. We have this sort of conflicting emotions about it. The people who do work with the data, you know, one, were always worried, oh man, like my data isn't clean enough, it's not ready enough to do this analysis I want, it's not ready enough to be published or to be shared, um, it's never going to be clean enough. We're thinking this on one side of our brains, but on the other side of our brain we're thinking there is no such thing as perfectly clean data. We're struggling between these two poles of like wanting clean data, but also knowing that clean data is impossible. Can you talk about what you had planned to cover in the course? The plan was to kind of do this alternation each day between starting out with a sort of in the weeds, like let's try working on some weird complicated source material and some weird complicated data that comes out of it. And let's work with some tool to help highlight issues and challenges surrounding how we represent this you know, cultural data source, whether it's a book or a painting or a manuscript. Then to put that into conversation with some more critical readings that are helping to introduce students to the course to thinking critically about data and thinking critically about what organizing and sharing their data means. An example of one of these would be a tool that I often teach with, Palladio. This tool is about putting in the data you have and using those visualizations, these simple visualizations for looking at spatial data, for looking at data that changes over time, and for looking at networked data using it as a way to then explore what are the eccentric parts of my data. Do I have a giant dot centered sort of somewhere off the coast of Africa at coordinate zero, zero, indicating that my geocoding didn't really work out very well? This is such a great tool because uh, you don't need to come with a major quantitative or coding background to use it. But every time I've taught it, students immediately latch on to, oh, this is a weird thing in the data set 
that raises questions about the data. Like the data set that we might use is a data set that comes from the Getty Provenance Index, where I've done a lot of research and it looks at the history of mo the movement of art from collectors, art dealers, and so forth into museums. And it's a great piece of data because it's looking at this one art dealer, Nodler Gallery in New York City from about 1870 to 1970. It has addresses in it, it has connections between buyers and sellers, it has numbers, it has categories, it sort of has all the building blocks. But every time we use it, students come out with many more questions about, wait, what is the relationship of this spreadsheet to the archival materials that are messy? And that's the kind of tool that I'd then put into conversation with a reading like Katie Rawson and Trevor Munoz's Against Cleaning, where they do a fantastic job of explaining why data cleaning is, in some sense, uh, an impossible task, because there is no platonic, pure representation of some historical, cultural document or artifact as a spreadsheet. It's impossible to make a data set that serves every possible need. What are my needs? What are the needs of colleagues who might reuse this data or institutions that might be able to reuse this data? And what are incremental steps towards making it more usable, more pliable to my questions, even as I keep hold of the site that the data I'm making are not my cultural heritage artifacts. Like this data will never be the paintings that I'm looking at. It's always going to be something different. One reason to go to a class like this is to learn a tool so you can do a thing. But what a lot of Dream Lab classes also seem to be teaching is that by learning these tools and techniques, you can also learn how to be a critic of other people's digital work. I'm wondering if you see those two sides coming out in the class that you designed. One of the key problems that I wanted to address uh, with this course was you go searching or Googling or asking someone for advice on, well, should I use X tool or Y tool or Z tool? And then they always come back with, well, it depends. And then they don't tell you what it depends upon. My goal was to help out was to say, one, okay, we're going to acknowledge the data anxiety, but then we're going to try and push through that to say, here are some sets of principles that you can use to help you figure out what trade-offs you're going to make. I want them to be able to come out thinking critically, but I also want them to come out not feeling paralyzed with data anxiety. I want them to be able to say, I made these choices and I can justify why I made those choices. The biggest principle is to how to think about relationships in their data, but really it's about getting them to think, what are the relationships that I'm going to try to encode? If I were making a database of paintings, I could start with one spreadsheet, with one column for the artist, and I may soon realize, wait a minute, many of these paintings have multiple artists. How am I handling this one-to-many relationship with this painting and who created it? And then on further reflection, and depending on my question, I might realize, oh, I don't just, it's not just that one of the artists was a designer for the painting who executed the underdrawing, and the other artist handled the human figures in the landscape. And so suddenly, not only do you have this relationship, but that relationship has attributes. That kind of thought process, going from here's the simplest model where you know, the idea of an artist is inherent to the idea of a painting, which is super simple and works for Google, but it might break down if your research question really depends on understanding, oh, different artists had different roles in different times in this artwork. Getting people to start to walk down that path and then understanding like practically how do you do that. I want them to 
applied principles of thinking about what kinds of attributes change over time. Does a painting have an owner? Today, it does. Well, paintings also had a long series of owners. Not only did they have owners, but there were events. There were purchases and sales and commissionings and thefts of these paintings. These are all different ways of presenting a certain idea of provenance or how a painting may have moved around between different owners since it was first created. Depending on your research question, you may need a very simple representation of that, or you may need a more complex and nuanced representation of that. And you know, the key principles that I wanted them to come away with were learning how to start walking down that path of complexity and figuring out, you know, what are the what are the parts where I know I'm going to need to have a lot of different attributes, where I'm going to need to be able to track change over time or changing places, and what are things where that complexity isn't as important? Ultimately, what I want to teach them is that doing this work of data tidying, where you're really defining what are the ontological relationships between these entities, I want them to think of data tidying as a series of trade-offs. It's possible to create data that represents extremely complicated and contingent and context-dependent information. The more you do that, the more difficult that data becomes to use. For you to use it, uh, you have to write more code, you have to click more times in Excel, you have to do more stuff. It becomes more complicated for other people to understand it. And so understanding that there are trade-offs then in how complex versus how simple you decide to make your data. As you were talking, I kept thinking of a job I once had. I was a digital humanities coordinator, and I had to go to all the departments and talk about what we were doing in the library. I remember someone in the philosophy department saying, we're philosophers, we don't have any data. And that was probably the most blunt way anyone had ever said that to me. But there does seem to be this attitude like, you know, we're the humanities, we don't have data. Data is for science, data is for math. It's a really understandable reaction. I have a PhD in 17th century Dutch art, which seems like a rather odd place to come from to then go on to be a developer. Much of my dissertation work was in looking at kind of data-driven analysis of how printmakers were working at the time and looking at it in a networked way. I got so interested in all of these mechanisms we have for dealing with humanities and cultural heritage data and information. In art history, though, I always point back to, okay, well, a catalog resume is a scholarly publication that basically tries to define the entire corpus of work of a single artist. Look at this catalog resume that we have on the shelf from 1920. You start to page through them and you realize this is a database. It has categories. It has actually multiple indexes. And this isn't stuff from 100 years ago or even further back that has the same data manipulation technologies as we use today, or the same data manipulation principles as we use today, that the technology is though printed on paper instead of being done digitally. We really often do have data. We've just expressed it in a way that's different from how much of the discourse about data today works. The other main aspect of this course was when you've tidied your data, that you're not only tidying it for yourself, that you are trying to tidy for a larger community. And you know, libraries have been at this for a very long time. But what I wanted, you know, individual practitioners, scholars who are based in universities doing research, what I wanted them to come away with is, all right, I'm only saying a couple of bits about this work of art, or about this book, or about this manuscript, or about this photograph. How can I help the institution that holds it 
and future users who might come to look at that object and then want to find out, like, what data is there about this? What can I draw into my own study? How to help craft their data to work in this larger ecosystem. And a lot of this touches on a concept that is a bit of a bugaboo in the cultural heritage world called linked open data, which is the concept that we are publishing data that uses a shared ontology, a shared way of connecting together all the different entities that we want to connect, and is using shared vocabularies. So when we talk about the same people, we're using the same identifiers to talk about those people. When we're talking about the same objects or the same publications, we're using the same identifiers to talk about them. And then that it's open, that this data is actually up and published and persistent and isn't going down uh, after a few years when the institution gets bored and forgets to pay their server bill. Fulfilling all of those tasks is really, really hard for an individual researcher. Like, I think it's unfair to ask them to shoulder that entire burden. Uh, what I do think, though, that they can take on is figuring out, all right, where are what I like to think of as like the sticky points or like the connecting sockets where my data might be talking about the same entity as someone else's data? The final part of this class was really going to try and teach students, here's how to reconcile your data to connect in to these larger data ecosystems. That reconciliation is never going to be 100%. In fact, as a researcher, like if you're doing your job, you're going to be finding new things that have never been put in anyone else's database. So that, that's a good thing. But you're going to ease other people's use of your data if you help make those connections. If we look at a field like genomics, They've agreed on their object of study, and they've also agreed on, like, here are the attributes and ways for talking about them. Because we've all agreed on them, and there's still a massive amount of work to be done, here are the formats for publishing gene sequences, right? In our history, we may have agreed very loosely on our objects of study, but how we talk about them? Very little agreement. What are your priorities when discussing a certain artwork or discussing a set of artists? By definition, almost, they're going to be different from another scholar's. Your work has value because it is different. Whereas in the world of data, that data has more and more value. It's more usable when it has similarities to other data, when it's using the same schema, when it's using the same vocabularies. Anyone from the humanistic disciplines who wants to work with data they're going to have to kind of come to terms with that and figure out where is my radical break going to be so that I can stand apart from everyone. Then how am I going to then define my data in a way that it can be perhaps used by someone else? I don't think the solution to this is that disciplines sit down and figure out standards. I, don't, I think that's entirely the wrong way to approach it. Uh, I think that's the job of cultural heritage institutions to do, not to come up with uh, here are standards for interpretive data, but instead to come up with, here are the standards for our documentary data. Here's all the information that we have about this object. Now you go forth and build upon it. And then there's a shared returning point in the form of, I'm talking about this painting, this is its canonical ID. You're talking about that painting, you also used its canonical ID. Wow, now this chemical analysis and this social analysis can connect together. And it can be connected together in a way that a machine can understand also, not just the human can understand. 
This special Dream Lab series of the Price Lab podcast was produced by Sarah Malinsky, Program Manager of the Price Lab, with additional editing and production by Penn Senior Kia De Silva and students from the Narrative and Listening in the Digital Age class at Penn, including Emmett Foley, Alexis Messino, and Kelsey Gibbons. We also want to thank Julie Beth Napolin and Clay Coleman for their expert advice, as well as all the Dream Lab instructors who were so generous with their time. This podcast was made possible with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.